Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Finally, after almost a week of protest at DECA offices, we have the first official statement from the DECA Group HQ in London. A spokesman of the company confirmed the existence of what is now commonly known as DECA slow ships. These vessels are used to experiment with new and cheaper ways of prisoner transportation. DECA ensures the public that the vast majority of launches from Cleveland are still regular prisoner transportation vessels. Because of the slow ships being cheap and many times very old autopilot models, there is no way to communicate with anyone on board while they travel beyond our Milky Way. The only way to monitor the prisoners is through analog recordings, which are sent back to Earth through radio waves. The spokesman revealed that the leak of these radio transmissions came from within the company, most likely from a disgruntled employee stationed at the mining complex. DECA claims that the chaotic and inhumane conditions, as reported on the tapes, are an anomaly. According to the company's analysis of all slow ship recordings, the experiments are already proving to be what they call a huge and unprecedented success. Tape number four, The Doctor. I am the doctor, and this is my seventh entry. I can't believe one of us is dead. I already talked about it yesterday, I know, but it's still so unreal. It never occurred to me that stuff like this could happen. Fundamental, you know, changes. There are only nine of us now. I mean... I know the leader can open the disposal hatch in the hospital room, and I realize it's for getting rid of human bodies. But the way it's described in my instructions, it's just... I don't know. It just seems like it was put there because one day we will die of old age somewhere in the distant future. But it already happened. Someone already died. And now, there are only nine. We aren't a group anymore. We aren't part of the same structure now. You need ten parts for that. All order is gone. I mean, the way the leader and the communicator dealt with this? They lied. They lied about having everything under control. They tried to lie about the blood I found in the dorm. They told the others nothing was wrong. They acted like it was just the cleaner taking his time to finish up. (laughs) Unbelievable. I thought the leader had a perfect view on the whole. And I thought the communicator, a perfect understanding of the inner workings. But none of that is true. They are lost also. None of this was supposed to happen. But it did. So there's no way of knowing what will happen next. There's no way of knowing who will be next. What the entertainer went through? You don't want that, believe me, I know. 
That must have been a horrific end. It took me a while to figure out what caused it, his death. I had to examine him thoroughly to find out. The cleaner helped me get him out of his locker while the rest went downstairs for breakfast. He grabbed him under the shoulders and I grabbed his legs. The whole locker was filled with puke and blood. When we moved him, you could see the extent of it. It was an incredible mess like all of his insides had come out and in the smudge, there was a toothbrush just laying there. A toothbrush. We carried him into the hospital room so I could start investigating his wounds right away. The most obvious ones were on his arms and hands. There were three or four deep cuts. This told me the killer had used the entertainer's hand to write his message on the lockers. Either that or he made the entertainer write the words himself before finishing the job. Those cuts aren't what killed him though. They were too superficial and only in his fingers. Like I said, it took me a while to figure out what had happened. His face was swollen, that's why I didn't notice at first. But when I looked closely, I could see a little lump in his throat. There was something in there. I held his mouth open and used a pair of 24 inch tweezers to reach far enough down into his mouth to get to the obstruction. What I pulled out was a piece of linen a kind of cloth pushed all the way in there. That explained the toothbrush in the locker. The murderer probably used that to push it down. It must have been horrendous. I used the tweezers to fold the smudgy cloth open. And that's when I saw it was a sleeve. I had just pulled someone's sleeve out of the entertainer's throat. I was standing there trying to remember who had said something about his shirt being ruined looking at the rough edge of the ripped sleeve, and that's when I realized the murderer must have had a knife. A small, sharp knife to inflict thin incisions. And there's only one place in the eight rooms where one finds such a knife, in my cabinets. I walked back into the dorm and opened my locker to find that my key was gone, the key to my cabinets. I always keep it in exactly the same spot, but it wasn't there. Instead of the key, there was the weapon. It wasn't a knife like I thought. It was one of my pairs of scissors, the ones I used to cut bandages. It was drenched in blood. I picked it up and quickly wanted to put it back in the cabinet as if that would solve anything. But halfway back into the hospital room, I realized I couldn't get into my cabinets anymore. Someone had taken the key. I stood there holding the bloody weapon when the elevator started rumbling, suddenly. I jumped and threw the scissors into the dorm. I didn't want anyone to see me holding the thing. They might think that I have something to do with it. I fled back into the hospital room and just stood there waiting for someone to walk in, but no one came. It was probably the cleaner going down to get breakfast or to get some supplies or something, I don't know. Two things were very clear from that moment, though. I trust no one anymore. And thus, I must prepare for the fact that no one trusts me either.
This is coming to us live from Enya Central Hospital, ladies and gentlemen. Police forces have surrounded the medical complex. Almost an hour after reports started coming in of a dangerous situation unfolding in the main hospital building. A second SWAT team has moved in through the West Wing after the first dispatch reportedly ran into trouble. The team apparently wasn't able to cope with whatever awaited them in the main reception area of the hospital. We've seen reports counting up to seven deaths, amongst them three patients and more than 20 people severely injured, amongst them two SWAT officers. What exactly happened is somehow still a mystery. We do have some eyewitness accounts from people standing right outside the building. They reported seeing all kinds of big medical equipment, an entire air conditioning unit, and even a nurse being flung out through the windows. We'll keep you updated on any development. This just in, a report directly from Enea Central Hospital, an actual eyewitness account from inside this deadly attack still cloaked in mystery. She reports a doctor working at the hospital is responsible for all the chaos and death in and around the main building. Now, as hard as it is to believe the eyewitness reports, it was a young woman, somewhere in her late 20s or early 30s, average build, causing all this mayhem. The eyewitness described the woman as superhumanly strong and unstoppable. She was seen rampaging through the halls, grabbing anything and anyone that crossed her path, pulling AC units from the wall with only one hand, and throwing medical staff across the halls as if they were weightless. The witness goes on to say that the doctor seemed to have no control over her own actions. She seemed unable to stop herself and kept going on against her own will, almost as if possessed. We'll have more on this after a word from our sponsor. The farmer wasn't at the breakfast table. The others told me he went straight up to the garden room to get to work. He is one of those people who holds in fear and grief and all that stuff and just keeps going on as if he never felt any of those things. That stuff will come out, though. I sat down, and the cook brought me my cup of breakfast. While we ate, the fixer kept going on and on about stealing everybody's jumpsuit until he got his sleeve back. He was very angry. I didn't want to tell him that I found the sleeve in front of everybody. I wasn't sure what that would cause. The fixer looked at the cook mainly while he was ranting, clearly blaming her. She got up without finishing her breakfast and called the elevator. She said she had to go to the bathroom. The fixer told her she couldn't walk away from this forever or something like that. She ignored him. After that, we ate in silence for a while. The communicator didn't even try to lift the spirits. And obviously, the entertainer wasn't there anymore to talk about books or exercises or to tell a story about the philosopher. When the cook returned, she got right to clearing the table. She never finished her own breakfast. Hopefully she's not poisoning us or something. The teacher asked the leader if he knew what the words were meant to convey. The fruitful will live. The useful will live. The leader looked at her all panicked, like he'd never expected to get another question about it. I hadn't noticed he was so stressed out. The guy needs to get his anxiety under control somehow. The communicator jumped in and said she didn't expect it to mean anything profound. To her, 
It was clearly the work of an insane person. The real question is, the fixer said, is there anyone you wouldn't consider useful at the moment? The teacher started nodding frantically. Is there anyone we should keep an eye on, in your opinion? The cleaner sighed loud and obvious and said that being useful was incredibly easy. Follow your instructions, he said. Do that and you are useful. If your instructions tell you to wait and do nothing, just wait and do nothing. It's all very simple. I knew that was the cook's cue to pitch in. Useful to whom or for what, she asked. Useful to what end? To build something together, the communicator answered and sat down again at the cleared table. The only way to build something with a group of people is to follow a set of common instructions. But what, the cook asked frustrated, what am I building? We won't know until we finish, the communicator answered. <laughs> you don't have a clue, the cook concluded. Stop it, the fixer said. You did this to me, of course you did. Admit it and stop terrorizing us with your nonsense. I wasn't sure if he was referring to the murder or the ripped jumpsuit. The leader ordered us to stop talking and to get to work. Enough, he said. Go make yourselves useful. Make of that what you will. Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. In our search for a way to explain the horrible events at Ennia Central, our team met with Claire. Claire is one of the suspect's old college roommates. Our reporter found her willing to talk to us about her friend Susanna, a young doctor who turned into a mass murderer today. She was gentle and loved being around friends, Claire tells us. She also loved to have a good time. Claire admits suspecting Susanna of having some difficulty finding a healthy work-life balance, sometimes partying all week in spite of her responsibility during the day. Susanna even admitted using uppers to Claire, sometimes stealing them from the hospital supply cabinet to help her focus during the day. Claire hoped it was just a phase. She never intervened. The snippets that leaked from the official police report underline the rumors that have been going around about the events leading up to the Enia Central Massacre. The young anesthetist allegedly arrived at work sleep-deprived after a night of hard partying at a popular local bar called Floyd's Triangle. She was under the influence of several incredibly potent narcotics, commonly known as designer drugs. The doctor found herself unable to work because of the drugs. She decided to take a cocktail of several uppers in an attempt to stay awake and focused. She took these from the hospital storage, using her master key. After her shift... The young doctor needed something to relax and drive home on, as she put it. She admitted to stealing a dose of downers from the opiate storage. The report states that the combination of three specific drug types in her system formed what is referred to as decakidine. This is a very potent form of the more commonly known PCP, which was used as an anesthetic in the 1950s. 
This super PCP caused the doctor to lose all control over her body and feel almost no pain. After two years of consecutive trials, the verdict is in. Multiple life sentences for former doctor Susanna Stevens, better known as the Aeneas Slayer. The girl who single-handedly caused many deaths and many more wounded at Aeneas Central Hospital while under the influence of super PCP. Her lawyers used several appeals to try and get a temporary insanity plea, but to no avail. All judges agreed that considering Ms. Stevens' occupation and expertise, she could and should have known that combining high doses of many different chemicals could put the lives of her patients and the people working with her in danger. Therefore, Ms. Stevens saw the final hammer go down this afternoon after she was charged with multiple accounts of manslaughter for the third time. Ms. Stevens will be transported from the British Mother Island to the DECA Group placement facility in Cleveland, where she will be prepared to become part of humanity's fastest-growing workforce. Upstairs in the dorm, I found my key. It was lying right there in my locker as if it had always been there only the brown stain to remind me of the scissors. This means one of two things. Either the farmer had put it back while we were having breakfast, or the cook had put it back while she went into the bathroom. I took the key and walked back into the hospital room. I wanted to do one last check on the body for traces of the murder, and then fetch the leader to open the disposal hatch. While I was working, I could hear the cleaner walking into the dorms. He was probably going to finish cleaning the blood. I could hear him sitting down on the floor to open the cabinet, but then he gasped. He got up and called me from the other room. Immediately, I knew what he had found. The scissors. I had totally forgotten about the scissors. I had left them on the floor. I had thrown them across the floor and never picked them up. Oh, I'm so sorry. The last thing I wanted to do was add to the chaos. That wasn't my intention at all. I knew everything was about to escalate again because of me this time. So I walk back into the dorm and the cleaner is standing there, furious, his eyes wide open. He's looking at the bloody scissors in his hands. Look, look at this. I found them right here. He points at one of the beds. I found them right next to the bed she slept in last night. He drops his cleaning gear on the spot and walks towards the elevator. I follow him. I, I wanted to say something. I know I should have said something, but I'm too afraid. He walks into the elevator and presses the button. I jump in there with him and I tell him I want to see what will happen next. He just nods and keeps looking at the scissors. The ride to the kitchen seems to take forever. I try to open my mouth and tell him the truth. I tell myself, tell him, tell him, but I can't. I'm too afraid to implicate myself, to make people turn on me. I'm gonna end this finally, he says to me. This has been going on for way too long. Then the doors open and he walks into the kitchen. No one is there. So he walks into the entertainment room and there's the cook doing exercises with the communicator. The cleaner says, I found the murder weapon. I found it right next to the bed you slept in last night. And he throws it at the cook's feet. That doesn't mean anything, the cook says. The teacher was in that bed also. You can feel the tension building. It's about to escalate. And then the communicator steps in and makes the whole thing explode. 
She says, everybody take a breath. Let's not make this problem any bigger than it has to be. And I can't believe what I'm hearing come out of her mouth. Nobody does. Let's not make this problem bigger than it has to be. Everyone gets furious and starts talking at the same time. It's total chaos. When the communicator tries to take her words back, the cook says, it might as well be you. That's how much we know. That's how big this problem is. You are one of the suspects. And that's when it happens. The cook accusing our leader of murder makes the cleaner completely lose his shit. He leaps towards the cook, grabs her, and throws her against the wall. It happens really fast. The leader orders him to stop, but the cleaner gets on top of her and punches her in the face again and again and again. The leader and I run towards him and grab him and drag him to the other side of the room to make him stop. In the middle of him punching, all the lights go dark. At once, suddenly, in all eight rooms. We can't see a thing anymore. Nothing. It's pitch black. You can hear the cleaner and the cook breathing heavily. No one else makes a sound. All of us just stand there, waiting for what would happen next. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.